VCG believes that creating climate solutions is the defining challenge of our generation. So we're working with leaders everywhere to understand and mitigate the cost of climate inaction. But we're also helping them find ways to innovate, build sustainable businesses, and stay competitive in an evolving world. Stick around to discover the many opportunities in a more sustainable global economy. Welcome to Zero. I'm Akshatrati. This week, cobalt competition and high octane capitalism. Let's talk about Warren Buffett, the CEO of Berkshire Hathaway. Over a 70-year career, he's become an investing icon, known as the Oracle of Omaha. Berkshire Hathaway has become one of the most valuable stocks in history and turned Buffett into a mega-billionaire. It all started in the 1960s when Buffett bought a textile business called Berkshire Hathaway. He used that company as a stable source of income to place other bets eventually turning it into a holding company for all kinds of investments. Buffett's investments are not climate-oriented. Berkshire holds shares of many carbon-intensive businesses and only some clean energy companies. My guest today, Chamath Polihapitiya, is a venture capitalist and self-proclaimed disciple of Buffett. He wanted to create a Berkshire for climate, and not because it's the morally right thing to do. People ask me, like, are you motivated to solve the climate problem because of your love of the environment, I could give you the virtue signaling answer, which is yes, but that's not really where my motivation comes. My motivation is economic. Chamath made his fortune as an early Facebook employee and later with well-timed investments in the tech industry, including through a venture capital firm called Social Capital that he has been running for a decade. In 2020, Chamath put out a call on Twitter are you interested in decarbonization, sustainability, and climate change and want to do something about it? I need help allocating a few billion dollars into these areas over the next two to three years. So, dot, 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 I'm turning to you for help. In return, you can work with me to implement it. Chamath outlined how anyone could write in, with a way to create a holding company that bankrolls the growth of climate tech companies. I missed this until I got a call from a material science professor at Carnegie Mellon University, Venkat Viswanathan. Venkat and I often talk about startups and investments, and we thought, what the hell, let's write in. Our group went pretty far in this competition. But since that tweet, Chamath has not created a climate holding company. But through his firm Social Capital, he has invested in climate tech companies. A residential solar startup, a battery manufacturer, a marketplace for farmers. So during a trip to Silicon Valley, I arranged for him, Venkat and I, to talk about why he never created the Berkshire for climate, what companies he invests in and why, and how much can you teach yourself about batteries. Chamat, welcome to Zero. Thank you. Thanks for including me. Now, let's talk about what you wanted to build, which was a Berkshire Hathaway for climate. And you started that out, and one reason why uh, Professor Venkat Viswanathan and I are here today is because you put out a tweet saying, hey guys, if you had a billion or three billion dollars and you wanted to put it all to climate in a climate holding company, how would you structure the climate holding company? And Venkat and I used to talk 
frequently about batteries and startups. And we saw the tweet and we were like, hey, that's an interesting challenge. Should be, you know, noodle a few ideas. And so the deadline comes and closes. You end up getting 1,500 applicants. Yeah. And end up employing an, a McKinsey consultant. I mean, it cost us $2 million. True, true it was Chamat so expensive. <laughs> I, was, I mean, we have so to... So that's we, probably the most so expensive tweet you've put out. I mean, <laughs> no, because I put out other tweets where I've done deals and I've lost hundreds of millions. So, <laughs> you know, it, it, they're, they're, you can rank them. Um, but I wanted to make sure that we were being thoughtful and signaling to people that, that this was something that we took very seriously. And I just needed intellect. Like, we have a very small organization. And so, you know, when you have 7,000 pages of content or 10,000 pages of content from all very, very diverse, smart people all around the world, you have a responsibility to be thoughtful about that. And so we hired McKinsey to help us sort through it all and read them all and score them. And yeah, I mean, it cost me a few million dollars, but it was money well spent. Why? Because at the end of that funnel, there were six or seven groups, you guys were one, that really helped me in clarifying how to think about this. So what did I learn from you guys as a class? The first thing I said, if you look back at the history of Berkshire, they have two seminal transactions that allowed them the oxygen, if you will, to become what they are today. The first transaction was Berkshire itself. And this was a business that had incredibly profound free cash flow characteristics. It was a dying business. You know, this was, they, they sold suit linings, right? But it was an incredibly accretive cash flow business, which allowed Buffett to take that money and to reallocate it into things that generated higher returns. And then the second seminal transaction was that so much of his money, of that money, went into Geico that in 1996, he was able to buy the 50% he didn't own. Geico is a large American car insurance company. It's a major source of stable income for Berkshire Hathaway. Warren Buffett has called Geico a jewel and his favorite investment. So I said, I have to go back to the beginning and say, is there a Berkshire Hathaway-like asset in climate today? And I found some. The problem was I did not have the courage to buy them. What were they? I found specifically a coal company in the United States. I was in love with this company, in love with it. I was like, I should buy this company. But when push came to shove, where I did not have the courage to act. And by the way, this was back then, which would have been a, a sickening trade today, okay? Of course. Sickening trade. Coal is at uh, a stunningly high the, price, right? The health issues of the people, the ability to keep them employed gainfully over long periods of time, the environmental impact. But that coal asset, in my mind, was my version of a Berkshire. In that, it was in climate. I mean, let's be honest. It, you know, creates energy, maybe not in the best way, but it does. Well, you're it using the cash flow from the coal It plant. generates enormous cash flow, and I thought I could reallocate this cash flow into now building this portfolio of assets that I think are quite interesting. Batteries, solar, all of this stuff. But you didn't make that investment I, because of ESG constraints? You don't have no, any ESG constraints. I have no ESG constraints, but I have moral constraints. And so, you know, I I sat down and I was thinking, like, what happens when a person, a parent says, my partner has black lung because of the work he or she did in your mind. What do I do? Well, the old line answer was tough shit, health insurance, and then you're on your own. I can't do that. Not based on my background, I would feel too much guilt. 
So I went through those practical issues. And I could not tell myself that I would make the decisions that I would need to to optimize for free cash flow. Do you see what I'm saying? Yep. Not in that asset. If I own a software asset, it's easy. There's Nobody's coming to you with black lung. And I just didn't have the internal stamina to do it. I, It's not me. So then what I came to the conclusion of is there is no anchor asset for me today. So no, the reason I have, we haven't started a Berkshire for climate is we haven't found our Geico. Now, let's just start by talking about your climate tech investments. Perhaps the biggest one first? I think we've put on the order of about a billion dollars to work over the last two and a half years. And I would say that some, most of them have been really about learning where we think the future opportunities are. And then one has really consumed a lot of the capital, which is this company called Palmetto. And the simplest way to think about it is that Palmetto is driving the bottoms up deregulation of energy. And the way that it does that is that it helps consumers really simply and cheaply get solar onto their roof in a predictable way uh, for a predictable price. And then it allows them to manage that energy so that they can be self-sufficient and resilient. And all the excess energy can be put back into the grid. And all of that you know, becomes cheaper and cheaper over time. You've made not just solar bets, but other bets. Yeah, if, if I can take a step back, like if I can give you the framework in which, you know, people ask me like, you know, are you motivated to solve the climate problem because of your love of the environment? Um, I could give you the virtue signaling answer, which is yes, but that's not really where my motivation comes. My motivation is economic. The economic motivation that I have is that there is going to be trillions of dollars of value that will be redistributed over the next decade or two. And the simplest lens with which to view that change is through the lens of energy. So at the highest level, I was really fascinated by the geopolitical capital that it gives the United States to make better decisions if we're energy independent. Underneath that, I focused on two areas that to me seemed the most practical ways for us to get to energy independence. So number one is this deregulation of energy. If you put 100 million virtual power plants inside of every single home in America, you will completely change the nature of our need for hydrocarbons to such a degree that every time we look at a problem abroad and we take that issue off the table, I think we'll be in a much better position to coordinate and do the things that we believe in without having to make these very complicated trade-offs. I wanted to ask you about the climate motivation. So as we talked about, you want to make money, but maybe there's the peace and prosperity lens, which to me was an interesting way to think about it as well, which is if we don't solve this problem, there will be less peace in the world. If you solve this problem, there will be more prosperity in the world and there will be more peace. There's, it, the correlation is kind of tight to me, is it not? I'm pausing. Okay, I am not sure that that's true. Hmm. I don't know whether, I just think that the United States has more freedom. So actually, let, let's talk about, like, if you look at the Iran nuclear deal and our position and our, and our posture with Iran, one could theorize that if we were completely energy independent, we would take a much harsher stance 
not necessarily because of our need for Iranian oil. I don't think we have that. But our friends and our friends' friends who do need Iranian oil is what causes that posture to be more watered down, as an example. And I'm not saying that that's the right posture to take. But you can go through all of these issues and actually come to a very different conclusion if you take energy off the table. Because it's a weight off of our shoulders or it's a weight off of our allies' shoulders. And I think that that, that is an important place to be. And so this is why I think the energy transition really should be understood in this geopolitical context. It is a national security and peace and prosperity objective. There's a lot of science that has to go into it and a lot of carbon maybe that gets eliminated and who knows how much because those are all guesses. But what is practically true is that our foreign policy changes dramatically. It changed dramatically when we were energy independent for the few years under Bush and you know at the beginning of Trump or I think it was yeah, maybe at the, at the beginning of Trump it ended, but... Um, well, energy independence as a concept is a, is a weird one because even when there was enough energy that America was producing on its own territory, it was still importing oil because the sum of the oil it was making it had to export because the type of oil that was being right. produced here was only being refined in other I places. I mean, saying net. Yes, you know, net, net energy basis, independence, net energy, yeah. that's true. Yeah. Um, yeah, you're absolutely right. But it has implications for our allies as well. Like, you know, think of how the degrees of freedom... It gives, I don't know. Europe right now, Europe. when it's going through a gas crisis and is dependent on U, uh, US LNG. Yeah. But beyond the solar bet, what are the bets that you've made that would okay, allow so you at, to do that? So at that? the highest level, I was really fascinated by the geopolitical capital that it gives the United States to make better decisions if we're energy independent. Underneath that, I focused on two areas that to me seemed the most practical ways for us to get to energy independence. So number one is this deregulation of energy. And then the second is that if you unbundle that concept of the virtual power plant, there are two practical opportunities today. The first is how do you actually deploy the physical systems on top of 100 million homes so that they can generate energy? That's what Palmetto does. But then the second is while you're always generating energy every day, if you get solar on top of your roof, you need to store it. So then the next area that I got really fascinated by was batteries. And within batteries, it's really a matrix. There are different chemistries and different use cases. So if you talk to a utility, the battery solution that they would deploy are these football field size, you know, storage solutions that, you know, use a, a very specific iron-based chemistry perhaps. It's cheap. It has very different characteristics than the NMC or NCA batteries that Tesla would put in a, te a Model X. Right, and that's nickel, cobalt, manganese or nickel, cobalt, aluminum. Exactly. Exactly. Now, if you did not catch that, I just listed out the elements in the batteries that Chamath describes as being in one of Tesla's more expensive cars. All of these batteries are lithium-ion batteries. Lithium is the element that has enabled the explosion of handheld electronic devices we use today and the electric car revolution. But within lithium-ion batteries, there are different formulations. And these formulations have meanings beyond just how the battery works. There's cost, there's also supply chain, and ethical implications related to buying the raw materials. Chamath mentioned ion-based chemistry. He's still talking about a lithium-ion battery, one with a formulation of lithium, iron, and phosphorus, the LFP battery. The F stands for Fe, which is the chemical symbol of iron. 
This chemistry is behind one of the cheapest lithium-ion batteries you can buy in the market. That's because the components of an LFP battery are widely available elements. The other type he mentioned, NMC or NCA batteries, NMC or NCA batteries are made with nickel, manganese, cobalt and aluminum. These metals are more expensive and they have other problems. The cobalt supply chain, for example, suffers from abusive labor practices. What chemistry a company chooses is a major decision. Very complicated issue. So I've started to focus on batteries. And um, in batteries, there are a handful of things that I think are practical solutions today. The first is that if you look at the choices that Americans make in terms of the kinds of cars that they drive, one of the biggest takeaways that you can make, practically speaking, is you probably do not need a Cadillac Escalade to go from your house to the Safeway and back. And so there are very different power, torque, energy profiles of cars that you could give a consumer to meet 99% of their everyday use cases, but then that also gives them the added value of knowing that they're not emitting you know, carbon into the environment. So you want to build a car company that is not a Tesla because a Model 3 will give you all that power and torque that is useless? I think Tesla is actually making the right decisions. So if you think about what Tesla did, they started at the upper end of the cost, but also the upper end of the chemistry curve, where they picked NMC and NCA because they had to, and Elon wrote this in his master plan, I have to sell a premium car to get these early adopters. The, the features of a premium car um, are underpinned by performance. Always has and always will be. But as he moved down the cost curve, what did he do? He went to LFP. He went to iron phosphate. Yeah, right? but Lithium it's, not, iron phosphate. it's not going to cause power and torque to go down. It's just well, the range. energy de- no, the no, uh, all of it changes. The energy density of these batteries are different. You you design a different car. From here, so Chamath, Venkat, and I got into a debate about the merits of different battery chemistries and how they affect the design of electric vehicles. It was charged. 2.3 seconds using LFP. Is that true? Do you want to elaborate and then maybe we can unpack so, that? If, if, you, if you think about like, you cannot do it. I'm just, guys, I'm just telling you. It'd be 30%, 30% heavier. You can't do right? it. All you need to do is put enough of LFP in there. No, you can't do that. That's not true. You don't have a power tool that moves a five-ton piece of metal. Yeah, so the reason for that is because okay, the let, power... Let's, okay, how about I give you the answer that satisfies you? In the end, we all agreed that the supply chain for LFP batteries is preferable to the NMC batteries for reasons that have more to do with politics than chemistry. Okay, so my point is that I've gotten very interested in that idea, which is there are practical solutions that require an energy profile that's very different than what we source today. You know, if you move away from these ternary chemistries and you go from instead of three critical you know, inputs like nickel, manganese, and cobalt, which are difficult to source, complicated, terrible supply chains, to LFP, which is basically everywhere, that's something that I really am interested in. I think that that's worth exploring. Both, again, from the perspective of cheaper, faster, better solutions will only happen on LFP, in my opinion. Right. And that's what your bet on Mitrochem is doing. In part. Mitrochem is a startup that Chamath's social capital invested at least $20 million into. The startup has plans to manufacture LFP, the material needed to make the cheaper lithium-ion batteries, in North America. The batteries will be for electric vehicles or energy storage. I think Mitrochem is two-pronged. 
One is we have to first prove that we can make the same LFP that China makes. We've proven that now at small scale. We have to prove that we can make it at large scale. So we're, you know, at the kilogram scale, we can do it. We're as good as anybody else in China. Now we need to prove that we can make it at ton scale so that Samsung or SK or Tesla or anybody else who needs LFP can call us and say, I need, I need it from you guys. And as they do that, what we will also prove is that with the existing infrastructure that makes LFP, we will give you our version of LFP, which actually moves up the energy density curve at the same price point. And we have some tricks. We have some things that we've been experimenting with, our own trade secret, which if they bear fruit, will essentially allow us to have a recipe that for the same machines, the same infrastructure, can just give you a better version of the product that you were buying before. So that's one thing. But the second thing, which I think is on the margin slightly more important, is it domesticates this know-how and IP in the United States. After the break, I talked to Chamath about risk, SPACs, and ESG, which is using environmental, social, and governance measures these non-financial metrics to make financial decisions. Today's leaders face many hard choices, confronted with uncertainty, cost pressures, and growing shareholder demands. But they don't have to choose between pursuing climate and business goals. In fact, BCG research suggests that these ambitions go hand in hand. Did you know at least 40% of executives at large organizations estimate an annual financial benefit of $100 million for meeting emissions reduction targets, according to recent BCG research? BCG also found that transitioning to the circular economy could help unlock $4.5 trillion of GDP growth by 2030. The cost of inaction, however, is profound. In fact, further analysis indicates that missing climate targets could result in an average annual EBITDA reduction of 15%. At BCG, our experts recognize the myriad benefits, from risk mitigation to first-mover advantage, that come with sustainability. Let's partner to unlock a better sustainability journey. From Silicon Valley to Wall Street, the promise and perils of artificial intelligence are playing out on the world stage. But what will the next phase of AI adoption look like? Which companies from big tech to startups will dominate? And where do the risks and unintended consequences lie? I'm Emily Chang. Join me at Bloomberg Tech in San Francisco, May 9th, to answer many of the industry's burning questions. Alongside SNAP's Evan Spiegel, Xbox President Sarah Bond, OpenAI's Brad Lightcap, top researcher Dr. Fei-Fei Li of Stanford, and many more. More details and just a few tickets left at Bloomberg.com slash TechSF. The story of lithium-ion batteries is stunning in that, you know, almost all the components that went into making the first commercial one were invented here in America. But then it was commercialized by Sony in Asia. And then obviously in the 20th, first century, it was China that scaled up the industry. Uh, and so now we are, at least here in the U.S., having to reshore. By the way, they've, they've, they've done two things. 
they consolidated the industry with respect to the actual specialty chemical processing. So all of those pipelines are effectively Chinese-owned. And we need to do a lot of very hard work over the next 10 to 15 years to both pull in people, to train them if they don't exist, uh, and then to figure out how to do it ourselves. There's enormous amounts of know-how and trade secret baked into this stuff, which is what allows these duopolies and oligopolies to exist. And then the second thing that China did brilliantly is they used their capital to go all around the world and essentially buy the critical inputs. So in the United States, because we fell under the spell of ESG, you know, we allowed all these random companies to get the banner of ESG, which that didn't deserve it. You know, all of big tech is an ESG company, which is so stupid. Because what did it really do? It got all these asset managers to divest and move away from these hard capital areas of our world that we needed investment, mining, specialty chemicals. Nobody wanted to touch it. It is putting capital allocators in the position to be moral judges and arbiters. And I don't think that's the job capitalists should be doing. I think capitalists should focus on return on invested capital only. And when they do that, and if they do that well, they would finance some of the things that have been ignored. They would have financed the lithium exploration around the world, the lithium extraction in the United States, which not only, as it turned out, would have made us, and it still can, by the way, an enormous amount of money for that capital allocator, but it would have given a level of national security um, that we desperately need today. But you've also made the point that capitalists are chasing and have been for some time short-term returns, and that's because the people who run these investment firms, who run asset managers, are trained to do that. They go to the same schools, they meet the same people, they hang out with the same people, they have all the same thesis, and what they want is a set amount of return, stable return, all the time, right? So if that's the kind of capitalism that we have right now, how do you think that would have funded lithium exploration, the, which is the, high it's risk? It's not the only, it's not the only, look, here's the thing. I think it's unfair to cherry pick a set of decisions by a plurality of people in a moment as the total set of decisions. It has always been the case that the riskier the bet, the higher the returns. And it has always been the case that there have been people who are willing to take those bets. But I think what you're talking about is something else, which is after an industry starts to become professionalized, then a plurality of people do come in and they neither have the capability to make those decisions nor the risk appetite to make those decisions. And the capability meaning, you know, if you're if you're going to be a good biotech investor, I think at some level you need to have either built a biotech company or at least understand biology. If you're going to be a really skilled technology investor, I think you need to have built a technology company. Um, I think everybody else can be good, and some of them have turned out to be excellent, but mostly those folks are doing a job, and I think that's okay. So I think my, my retort to you would be, there are all kinds of people today, it's just that there's not enough of them doing some of the riskiest work. And I think right now, we're at a moment where there may be enough wins so that 
people get very excited to follow. So, for example, I am pretty sure that when people see the returns that we or that we will generate in some of our companies, it will open their mind to consider those kinds of companies when they never would have before. I'll give you a different example of one. So we we made an investment in a business that, um, again, this is in the theme of climate, but it's helping um, landhold farmers in India. And you guys know this, but there's, it's India is a highly, highly fragmented farming infrastructure. These folks are in a very difficult position. You know, if you look at the suicide rates among farmers, it's off the charts. It's crazy. It's crazy. And what are the problems underneath that? Debt. Yield management, the ability to source crops at a reasonable... I mean, like, these are very simple problems. It's a coordination well, problem. I mean, a lot it's of a the suicides exactly. are because, because of the money. farmers are not able exactly. to pay their loans back. Right. So my point is, it's very easy to identify. Like, it's not a mental health crisis amongst farmers. <laughs> these are capital and coordination problems that can be solved by a company with software, etc. We've made that bet. We're seeing some really interesting early progress. What's the company called? Harvesting Farmers Network. Anyways, I think if I walked around Silicon Valley, people would say two things. Chamath's a great investor. He's made billions and billions of dollars. What the hell is farming in India? Who the hell cares? They would say both of those two things. If this farming in India thing works, I guarantee you guys, okay, that more organizations in Silicon Valley will say, Maybe there's agriculture-based opportunities that we should really be focused on that can be improved by software because, look, Chamath just made a billion dollars off this thing. If he can do it, we can do it. I agree with that. You know, I don't think we're particularly that special. We're just willing to take risk a few years earlier than the plurality. If you're talking high risk, let's talk about failures. What are the failures that you've had personally and Tons. what have you learned from them? Tons. Okay, so... In general or in climate? Well, in climate, I think let's, <laughs> let's focus on climate. But okay. like if, if it gives you a bigger lesson. Look, to get to Palmetto, I probably burned a couple hundred million dollars. How did I burn it? I made some bad investments. I made some investments that were okay investments. I made some investments that actually made a little bit of money. But all of those things had a capital cost to me. The sum total of the money I had to spend, meaning money in versus money out, I lost a bunch of money. So for example... I invested in the solar financing space. I didn't know what I was doing. I wanted to learn about it. I thought I could understand it. I did understand it. But what I didn't understand was how horribly the market valued such companies. They couldn't care less. You know, they I thought, wow, here's a great cost of capital trade and you know, this makes sense and I and I talked myself into it and the market was like, this sucks. Uh, I invested in a in a in a renewable energy business in India, and I thought this is a no brainer. Ninety percent EBITDA margins. Who's seen a company like this? Everybody's gonna love it. And it's like eh. great entrepreneur, um, but you know it doesn't have the market characteristics to be rewarded. I did electric buses. You know, market didn't reward it. So all these signals I take on the way in, I'm willing to use my money as risk capital to learn. And so I go in thinking, if I have 100% impairment on this, would I be okay? And my answer typically is, as long as I am fundamentally further along in my understanding of the space, that's the cost of doing business for me. You know, because like I am not in the business of hitting a 97% average, batting average. That's not my business. It's not been my career. It's not what I'm good at. Lose, 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 lose. One massive giant outcome a couple of good outcomes, and you replenish the pot. And the way that that happens iteratively over years can build 
great fortunes, but it can also build great progress. And the way that I do it is I just start. You know, honestly, like I started in Wikipedia. I was like, what is a battery? And then I went to YouTube, like, show me how a battery is made. What is an anode? What is a cathode? And like, look, I, I, I mean, I'm being kind of facetious. I have a background in electrical engineering. My undergrad was in double E. You know, I spent a lot of time in semiconductors. So I know that world. So I was able to short circuit some of the learning steps. But to be very honest with you, it is, if you look at my calendar, in a, in a week, call it 50 hours in the office, I have maybe eight hours of scheduled time. So what am I doing the other 42 hours? You'll see me. You, for all you know, I could be sleeping at my desk, but I'm reading, constantly reading, reading YouTube, reading YouTube, back and forth, over and over and over again. And then at some point I say, okay, I jump in with my two feet, I make a bet, I learn. Sometimes I jump in with 10 million, sometimes I jump in with 50, sometimes I jump in with 100, trying to learn, trying to make sure that that, you know, that, that was a good investment, trying to reinforce my body of knowledge. And over time, for me, that has proven to be a, a successful way to approach the job. One of the things that Chamath is most known for is popularizing a kind of investment called a SPAC. He's often called a SPAC king. But what is a SPAC? I'll tell you about it through one of Chamath's most famous ones. Today, Virgin Galactic makes its debut here at the New York Stock Exchange as a SPAC. Joining me in a first on CNBC interview, Virgin Galactic founder Sir Richard Branson, Social Capital CEO Chamath Palabatia. It's 2019, and Chamath is on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, along with Branson, who is dressed in a blue space suit. It's the day that Virgin Galactic, the space flight company, went public via, as the reporter notes, a SPAC. SPAC stands for Special Purpose Acquisition Company. Two years earlier, Chamath and other investors created a special company with no operations or employees, just a shell company that was publicly traded. It existed solely to find another company that was not public to merge with, in the process making it public with shares on a stock exchange. They had $690 million to do it, and they decided to acquire Virgin Galactic. What they are celebrating at the stock exchange is the completion of that merger. Fireworks, literally. It's probably the first time I've ever seen pyrotechnics on the floor of the New York Stock well, Exchange. We, we <laughs> make a splash. With a conventional IPO or initial public offering, the majority of the stock sold on the first day goes straight to large banks, investment firms, or rich individuals. With a SPAC, many more people can buy shares. They are heavily marketed to retail investors people like you and me. That's largely Chamath's doing. Now it's wonderful to enable the public to come in and invest alongside us. Taking a company public through a regular IPO can take over a year because of the amount of oversight required by financial regulators. SPACs can be rolled out faster, which has its own benefits. SPACs were popular with climate tech companies because they're not seen as great investments through the lens of the traditional IPO route. These companies are developing technologies that are riskier, and they need lots and lots of money to develop those technologies before they can turn a profit. Chamath, as an investor in this company now, I know one of the things you've come on CNBC and talked about in the past is how impressive the gross margin. Chamath is a promoter of the SPAC. It's a role with compensation. Chamath could go on CNBC and promote Virgin Galactic. I generally don't put my own principal capital on the table unless I think there's a really compelling risk reward and I'm doing that here. 
He said Virgin Galactic would have revenues of close to $400 million by 2022. SPACs became bigger than Chamath. Celebrities like Tiger Woods, Shaquille O'Neal, and Serena Williams launched them. Chamath claimed he would create one for every letter of the alphabet. Virgin Galactic was SPAC A. Chamath ended up stopping at F. In 2021, Chamat sold his shares of Virgin Galactic while they were still high and made $200 million. He stated his money would go toward fighting climate change. Virgin Galactic did not make $400 million in revenue as projected by 2022. It brought in less than $2 million in revenue and was operating at a loss of $346 million. Overall, given the macro environment, etc., but also your specific investments, climate and non-climate, it's a rough time for you with SPACs all down. The plan that you had to have a SPAC for every letter of the alphabet, where is that now? I think that that could still be something that we do, but it'll happen over a much longer period of time. I think like SPACs are really, they're really interesting because I think there are a lot of companies that are working in industries that don't fit the neat model of how folks have wanted to historically invest in technology in the past. People have wanted to invest in software, 90 plus percent gross margins, you know, ideally recurring revenue. Um, these things are not possible in many areas that really matter. And in those, the capital markets will need different tools in order to bring investors together for hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars, billions of dollars. Uh, and I think a SPAC can still do that. I will do them from time to time. Um, but it was always a tool in my toolbox. You know, you have to remember, like in the last couple of years, I think we've done like 50 investments. You know, eight were SPACs. Or sorry, six were SPACs. Right. So there's still a lot of, there, our body of work is much bigger than that. Um, I think people know us for that or know me for that in part, but I would encourage them to, you know, read the annual letter to really understand, like, we are doing a lot of stuff. We've been, you know, on the ground floor in Silicon Valley for 11 and a half years building tech companies. That's what we do. If you look at the amount of money that was put into climate tech through SPACs, yeah. it's Incredible. astronomical. Astronomical. It would have never happened otherwise. I agree right? That is probably the singular moment that has happened for climate I agree. tech. Right? That in 2021, I agree. there was capital that was ingested at a level that was that has never happened. Never happened before. I agree, and I and I'm very proud of that. I think that that's that's a very good start. And then I think this, you know, the IRA is going to be profoundly impactful, profoundly impactful. I think that was an incredible, incredible piece of legislation on the whole, and I think Chuck Schumer deserves an enormous amount of credit for that. How he negotiated that with Manchin, I don't know the TikTok of that deal, but that is a transformational piece of legislation. This is American government at its best, which is mostly getting out of the way, creating very bright line incentives, and then letting the free market operate. You have a billboard outside your house with a message to the world. What would it say? Oh, I know the answer to this. It's the same billboard that when I first moved here in 2000 blew me away. It was um, right as you entered Menlo Park. And it was on the freeway, the 101 South, you're going on that. And it said, high octane capitalism ahead. <laughs> I loved it. 
I loved it. I was like, wow, I'm home. That's what I thought. I was like, I'm home. I found my people. So that's the billboard. It would say high octane capitalism ahead. Be passionate, but don't be emotional. Come to me with your best ideas. Fantastic. This was a lovely conversation. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Chamath is one of many venture capitalists trying to make it big with climate investments. Given the decline in the stock market globally, investors are being more careful about where to put their money. But relative to other industries, climate tech continues to get a healthy dose of investments. And while we talk about Buffett's disciples, if you'd like to learn why Buffett thinks an oil company can be a climate bet, check out our episode in the archive that features Occidental Petroleum CEO Vicky Holub. Thanks so much for listening to Zero. If you like this episode, please take a moment to rate, review and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Send it to a friend or send it to someone who wants to get rich quick. Get in touch at zeropod at bloomberg.net. Zero's producer is Oscar Boyd and senior producer is Christine Driscoll. Our theme music is composed by Wonderly. Special thanks to Venkat Viswanathan, Brian Eckhouse, Bailey Lipschultz and Kira Bindran. I'm Akshatrati, back next week.